Again, we're glad, we're glad you guys are here. Uh, my name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Ezra 10. If y'all are joining us online, we're so glad that y'all are with us as well. Middle school, you guys can slip out with Jeremy. It's a, been a year. I think the first service that we canceled last year because of COVID was March 15th. So it's just about a year. Some of you have been online for the full year, and we're thankful that y'all are staying with us. And we're, you know, there's some maybe a bit of frustration around the, the regulations and restrictions and people wondering how long that's going to go on. I don't know. Uh, we decided, we, as a staff in January, we said, let's just stick with what we've got until uh, through Memorial Day. So unless things change pretty radically, we're going to keep doing what we're doing through Memorial Day. Hopefully we'll be able to make some adjustments in June as the vaccine becomes more uh, accessible and uh, maybe some restrictions are lifted, but we're just really thankful for y'all's flexibility, for your grace, for your willingness to, to register. And, you know, sometimes I know it's very difficult, especially at this service, if you have elementary school children, that those rooms fill up so fast. And we're great. We're thankful for y'all being gracious. We're doing the best that we can, and we know that y'all are doing the best that you can as well. And hopefully just for a couple of more months. Uh, one other thing, just in case you don't get our email newsletter, I would say do that. But if you didn't, uh, this week we announced our new admin team. These are the guys that help make organizational decisions, money, staff, buildings. Uh, this team will come online next Wednesday will be our first meeting. If you know any of those guys, you can be praying for them. Chad Almy and Robin Burris are continuing on uh, in their service. And we have five new people who are uh, stepping onto the team. Pam Downs and Erica Fulgham, John Putnam, Ben Ferris, and Mark Hunt. Several of them are in the room uh, so if you know them, uh, make sure that you're praying for them. It's, uh, it's an important team for me. These are the areas where I feel the weakest as a leader, all of the organizational areas, and it's really important to me to have a solid group of folks to help. They provide wisdom, they're sounding board, they provide direction when needed, they provide accountability, and uh, we're really we're, we're thankful. Uh, those, all of you that participate in the process so thankful for y'all. We easily could have had three teams of seven, 100%. There were so many quality people who were nominated and who uh, kind of came through the congregation. We had to just pick five, but there, again, we easily, there, there, no exaggeration, we easily could have had three teams, seven each. There's so much uh, depth here, and we're just really thankful for these guys for saying yes. All right, Ezra 10. So Ezra's arrived safely in Jerusalem, and the first thing he hears is a report that some of the guys, some of the men in Judah, they're marrying foreign women, which is a big deal. It breaks uh, the law in Deuteronomy, and it also puts the identity of the Jews at risk. Their identities at risk because a foreign wife, introduction of foreign gods equals syncretism. We talked about that last week. And Ezra's response is maybe not what we would think. He was given power by the king. The king's name's Artaxerxes. He was given power to enforce the law. He could have, he had power to punish people who broke the law. So there was lots of options at his disposal. And the way he chose to respond, which was genuine, but it was calculated as well, uh, it, was a, it was a public expression or display of, re, uh, of, of remorse or of repentance and of grief. So he tears his clothes, a sign of grief. He sits down in front of the temple, dumbfounded, so that means he doesn't talk. Pulls hair out of his beard and out of his head. 
which is a sign of distress. Then at 3 o'clock, which is a time of the evening sacrifice, he prays a prayer. And he prays this prayer. Again, it's genuine, but it's out loud. It's a prayer of confession. God, we acknowledge that you're gracious and merciful, and we acknowledge that we sin all the time. And Ezra takes ownership. He didn't marry a foreign wife, but we talked about this last week. He identifies with his people. He talks about, his, he talks about our sin, not their sin. In chapter 10 is the response of the people. A crowd has formed around Ezra. In chapter 10 is how do they respond to Ezra's public display of grief and repentance, and then how does that ripple out into um, the broader country? Chapter 10, verse 1, while Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children gathered around him. No surprise, he was making a scene. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah said to Ezra, we've been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there's still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested, and they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God, and he went to the room of Jehohanan. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and the elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the elders. Within three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem, and on the 20th day of the ninth month, that's the middle of December, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You've been unfaithful. You've married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourself from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice, You're right. We must do as you say. But there are many people here, and it's a rainy season, so we can't stand outside. Beside, this matter can't be taken care of in a day or two because we've sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time along with the elders and judges of each town until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan and three other guys oppose this. So the exiles did as was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases And by the first day of the first month, they'd finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. So headline, everyone who married a foreign woman divorced her, and the kids of that marriage went with the mom. So that was how Israel, or Judah at this point, that's how they dealt with the sin. Anyone who married a foreign woman divorced her, and then the children of that marriage went with the mom. So they purified the people in that way. Digging in a little deeper. So this public display of mourning and repentance by Ezra, it draws a crowd. And out of that crowd, one guy, his name is Shechaniah, says, we've, we've sinned. We should divorce our wives if we married a foreigner. Ezra, you've been given the authority by the king to, to enforce this. Let's do this. We're with you. 
And so Ezra puts everyone who's around him under an oath. They make a commitment to the Lord. That's what we're going to do. We're going to do that. And I would think, and maybe you would think, well, Ezra would be happy. That's a solution to the problem. He was mourning. He was pulling hair out of his hair and beard, weeping, praying. And now the people have responded. It seems positively. But his response is to move from a public place in the temple into a private room and to fast. And it's an extreme fast. He's not just giving up food. He's not drinking water either. He's not drinking anything. It's an extreme fast. And he continues to mourn over the sins of the people. What's going on? One, I don't think he knows how big a problem it is. And so I think he, again, genuinely mourning over the sins of the people. But two, I think Ezra realizes the people who are going to have to divorce their wives, they weren't in the crowd. Ezra 9 describes this crowd that gathers around him in the temple as those who trembled at the word of God. If you tremble at the word of God, you probably don't break it by marrying a foreign woman. The people who gather at the temple at 3 in the afternoon, those are probably the more devout people. Folks who are willing to show up for the evening sacrifice in the time of prayer and confession. So my bias, my assumption would be that the, many of the men, and I would say maybe all of the men that married a foreign wife, they don't know what's coming. A decision was made by this guy Shechaniah. He presented an option or, or an, a, a solution. And if you read through the rest of chapter 10, he didn't marry a foreign wife. So his solution doesn't necessarily impact him personally. And I think most, if not all, of the people who are gathered around Ezra, they're not personally impacted either. They're impacted because they're a part of the group. But it's not going to impact their homes personally. And so I think Ezra's praying that when they have this assembly, that when these men do come who have married foreign wives, that they'd be receptive to this plan that's been made. And that's exactly what happens. It takes three days for everybody to gather, and it's a miserable day. It's the middle of December, so it's cold. It's a rainy season, so it's pouring down rain. They're outside, and I think they're nervous. They're nervous. It was a serious proclamation that was given. You've got to be here or we're going to take your property and we're going to kick you out of the community. That's the, that's the consequences of not showing up. So they know this is, this is no joke. There's at least 30,000 men 90 years ago when the first wave of exiles returned to Judah. There's 29,818 men. So 90 years later, 30,000 is a conservative number. So you've got 30,000 men outside in the rain shivering and they're nervous. What's God going to do? They talk about the fierce anger of God. They don't want to experience that. They just came out of exile. And they don't know what God's going to do because they're, they, they, they recognize we've, we've sinned. And when Ezra stands up and says, here's the deal very succinctly, it's a miracle to me. They all say, absolutely. You're right. We've sinned and we should divorce our wives if we've married a foreigner. But not, not now. We've got to deal with this is a significant issue this is a sensitive issue. It's pouring down rain. It's freezing. There's a better way of dealing with this. We're going to trust our leaders to make a plan. There are a few guys that disagree. I don't think they disagree with the solution, divorcing the wives. I think they disagree with the delay. Again, if you read the rest of chapter 10, none of those guys had married a foreign wife. So I don't, I don't think that they're upset at the decision. I think they're upset with the delay. But everybody goes home, and then over the course of three months, everyone who's married a foreign wife comes back to Jerusalem. They sit before what we'll call it a tribunal, people that Ezra has designated, and it's representative from different families. You would come from your, from your town with one of your local officials, somebody who knows you and knows your situation. 
and you just present the situation. And if you read through the rest of chapter 10 and you count the numbers, there's 110 guys who have married foreign wives, and every one of them divorces them. And that took three, that was a three-month process of investigating, so they went pretty slow. 110 cases in three months, it was 75 working days, so that's less than two cases a day. So they're, they're taking their time, being sensitive, I think, trying to figure out exactly what's going on. But 110 guys wind up divorcing their wives, and then Ezra just kind of ends. After Easter, we'll pick up with Nehemiah, which is kind of the rest of the story. It's, it's a continuation of what's going on with these returnees. So for us, maybe first question you're asking is, did they do the right thing? I thought God hated divorce. Is this a righteous decision? We talked about this in our staff, and there was some debate. Did the exiles, did they do the right thing in saying, if you married a foreign wife, you should divorce her? Or did they try to correct one sin, marrying foreign wives, with another sin, divorcing them? I think it was a righteous decision. Deuteronomy 24.1 says a man can divorce his wife if he finds something, if she displeases him because he finds something indecent about her, as long as he gives her a certificate of divorce. Uh, and, and according to what I read in Ezra 10, they did. They said they divorced according to the law. And so that just meant the husband had to give his wife a certificate of divorce, which meant she could then remarry. And I think that's what they did. That was according to the law that they had, the revelation that God had given them at the time, which was the old covenant. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's the law. According to that revelation, they did the right thing. They shouldn't have married foreigners. That was a sin. And you could divorce your wife as long as you gave her a certificate of divorce, which I think they did. So it was a righteous decision. It may seem harsh to us, but it was a righteous decision. I don't know. uh, So we've talked about this before. Culturally, an unattached woman was in a very vulnerable spot. If she didn't, if she wasn't, if a woman wasn't attached to her dad or to her husband or to her brother, very difficult for her to make a way. And so a certificate of divorce allowed her to remarry. This is not Hollywood romance. This is food on the table, roof over the head, protection. If she doesn't have that certificate of divorce, then she can't marry again. And so she's stranded in many ways. Very, very precarious situation. And so as long as a woman had that certificate of divorce, divorce was allowed. Now, New Testament things change. Jesus actually addresses a certificate of divorce, and he says the only reason that God gave you that was because of sin. It was because of the hardness of your own hearts. What God has joined together, we shouldn't be separating. He's made two people one person. And the only reason he said it was okay to divorce was because he recognized we're sinners. Paul addresses the issue of mixed marriages, and it's mixed spiritually. We talked about this last week. This is not racial or ethnic. This is spiritually mixed marriages, a believer and a non-believer. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says if that's your situation, if you're the believer, you don't leave. You don't initiate divorce. If the unbeliever chooses to leave, you can let them go. But you don't initiate divorce. Like we said last week, ideally, Christians are marrying Christians. That's the goal. That's the ideal. But oftentimes, we fall short of the ideal. Sometimes Christians choose to marry non-Christians. Sometimes two non-Christians get married and one of them becomes a Christian. 
after, after marriage, and one of them does it. Sometimes two Christians get married, and one of them decides at some point, I'm done, I'm, and they walk away from the Lord. There's multiple reasons why you could wind up in one of these, Paul calls them unequally yoked marriages. If you find yourself there, if you're the believing spouse, you stay. That's not a reason to divorce. And you also recognize that your presence, your prayers, your behavior can have a positive influence on your spouse. So was it righteous? According to Old Testament standards, absolutely. And that's all they had. According to New Testament standards, no, they, they sinned. That was the wrong thing to do. They didn't have the New Testament. It's not fair to judge Old Testament believers by New Testament standards. So yes, Ezra 10, that decision, in my opinion, was righteous. It would not be righteous in 2021. Paul has changed our perspective on what you do in a mixed marriage spiritually. I think for us, the, the, the deeper issue and the broader issue, it hits all of us. That's a small percentage of people that are in one of those types of marriages. The thing that caught me as I read Ezra 10 was how decisively the community dealt with sin. I said there were 110 men that had married foreign women. There were 30,000 men at least. It's a very small percentage. It's less than half a percent. If you have $100, it's 37 cents. That's it. It's in terms of scope. You're talking about a very small number of people that have engaged in this sin. Now, some of them are leaders, and so there could be a fear that, hey, if the leaders are doing this and everybody else is going to think it's permissible and it could snowball. But at this point, in terms of just scope, it's not that big a deal. But they deal with it very decisively. They call an assembly of every man in the nation... And they say, if you don't show up, we're taking your property and we're kicking you out of the community. And then when they meet together, they, they say, if you married a foreign wife, you got to divorce her. And you got to send the kids away with the mom. It's a severe decision. Again, I think it was the righteous one. The conviction point for me, do I deal with sin as decisively in my own life? or in the community that I'm a part of, our corporate sin? Do I deal with my sin or our sin as decisively as the Jews in Ezra chapter 10 dealt with theirs? And if I'm honest, the answer is no. I don't. I don't really do that. I don't know if you do. I want to walk you through a few steps. Here's what it looks like to deal with sin decisively. If you're at the men's retreat, some of this is a, is a, re a repeat of what Micah shared on Thursday, but it's good to be reminded. The first step, if we're going to deal with sin decisively, is we have to acknowledge that we've sinned, and that's a lot harder for some of us than we maybe are willing to admit. We have to say, I was wrong. It was wrong. That was wrong. I was wrong. Acknowledging our sin. What is sin? Sin is missing the mark. What's the mark? Jesus says the greatest commandments are to love God and to love people. Everything else you can put under one of those two headings. And so to sin is to do something that's not rooted in the love of God or the love of people. Sin is active. Things that we commit, it's also passive. Sins of omission, things that we don't do. When we have an opportunity to love and we don't, that's also a sin. That can quickly become overwhelming. When we start thinking through thoughts 
and desires and words and actions that are not rooted in love of God or love of people, we can get overwhelmed really quickly. This is something I would encourage you to do in your time with the Lord, at least weekly, if not more frequently. Pray a simple prayer from Psalm 139. Holy Spirit, would you search me and know me? It's his job to convict you of sin. That's part of what the Holy Spirit does. Holy Spirit, search me and know me. Show me if there are any offensive ways within me. Let me know where I'm missing the mark. General prayers get general answers. Specific prayers get specific uh, answers. So pray specifically. Show me. Where am I missing the mark? For me with Mary Margaret, with my wife. Where? Show me. Where am I missing the mark? With Mary Davidson, with Tom, with Nate, with Ty, with my kids. Where am I missing the mark with our staff? Where am I missing the mark with the church? Where am I missing the mark with the way I view money? Where am I missing the mark with the way I view time? Show me. Show me. You're not weeping and wailing for an hour. It's not, it's, the Holy Spirit's not going to give you 117. It's one or it's two. You deal with that and then he brings up the next ones. Ask the question. Holy Spirit, your job is to convict me of sin. Where am I missing the mark? And think through the spheres of your life. And just... 15 seconds on each one and see what comes to mind. So condemnation is nebulous and general. Conviction is clear and specific. The Holy Spirit wants to, he'll be very specific with you. He'll bring a memory to your mind and you'll be like, oh gosh, I did that. Sometimes there's emotion with it, sometimes there's not. But it's specific It's not some vague sense of not measuring up. That's condemnation. That's from the devil. You can't do anything with it. Once you acknowledge, then you repent. You move from disagreeing with God to agreeing with him. God, I disagreed. I thought I could serve you and money. And now I realize I can't. So I'm moving into an agreement with you. I want to serve you and you alone, Jesus. And I want to use money. I don't want to be used by it. That's repentance. Those things go together. Confession and repentance. That's the easy part. What's next? Dealing decisively with the cause of sin. This is where many of us come up short. Confession and repentance, most of us, we can, we can do that. But this next step can be pretty intimidating. Jesus twice, Matthew 5, Matthew 18, says if you're Hands cause you to sin, cut them off. Feet, cut them off. Eyes, pluck them out. It's better to go into life to be saved, blind or crippled or maimed, than to go to hell whole. And we know that's hyperbole. He's just exaggerating. He doesn't want us cutting off our hands, which is 100% true. But then it's easy to dismiss what he's saying. He's just exaggerating. The reason he's exaggerating is because it's a really important point, and he wants us to get it. I've never been accused of dealing with sin too severely. I don't know if you have. The ditch I'm going to fall into is not taking Jesus too seriously when it comes to dealing with the immediate cause of sin. This isn't the root cause. This is the immediate cause. Even a blind man can lust. But what's the immediate cause of sin in your life? And are you dealing with it decisively, even severely, fiercely? 
I rarely do. We live in, a, in an age of grace, which is wonderful, in an age of mercy. God doesn't give us what we deserve. He's merciful. God gives us good things that we don't. He's gracious. He forgives, and he forgives, and he forgives, and he forgives. And so we can easily begin to presume upon his grace and say, well, he'll forgive me. It's fine. I've heard people say, God's got to forgive me. He has to. Take a step back. I don't want to be anywhere near that. God can't be mocked. A person reaps what they sow. You start telling God what he has to do. That's a heart issue for us. If you're engaging in persistent sin, you need to, I would strongly encourage you to take note of that. Sin is rooted in our hearts. It's not rooted in our bodies. But we can begin by dealing severely with what, what the, the root causes are, or excuse me, with what the immediate causes are. If you struggle with lust, you're carrying in your back pocket access to an infinite amount of pornography. So what would it look like for you to say, I'm just going to get a dumb phone instead of a smart one? That's plucking out your eye. That's saying, I, I don't trust myself with this, and so I'm going to get a flip phone. And I'm going to be the guy that it takes an hour to send you a text. That's, but it's worth it to me. I'm plucking my eye out. If you struggle with covetousness and with greed, what would it look like for you to say, listen, anything over X amount, I'm giving it away. No questions asked. It's not a million dollars. Don't set it at something that you know you're not going to hit. Anything over that amount, it's, I'm not even, I'm done. I don't trust myself with it. I know myself well enough to know. Micah asked a great question this weekend around self-awareness. If you were the devil, how would you destroy you? It's different for each one of us. Do you know yourself well enough to know your weaknesses? And in those areas, are you willing to cut off your hand and your feet and your eye, pluck out your eye? If the nightcap is what gets you through the day, you're looking forward to the drink at the end of the day when you're in your chair and everything's settled and that's what gets you through the stress of your afternoon, would you pour it all down the drain? That's cutting off your hand. I don't want to go anywhere near it because I don't trust myself. I know me. I know me. And I know how quickly I can become dependent upon alcohol to help me sleep, to numb my pain, to get me through the day. What is it? Do you know yourself? Do I know myself well enough to say, here's the area where I'm weak. And so in that area, I'm plucking my eye out. I'm cutting my hand off, cutting off my feet. It's not worth it to me to run the risk of falling into this trap that I know the devil's laid for me. Real quick, you got to, I would say, you don't have to. Accountability is really important. If you could do it on your own, you already would have. So the fact that you're struggling probably means you need some help. You don't have to tell the world, I'd advise against it, but two or three people, hey, listen, I'm getting rid of my phone, and this is why. I struggle with pornography, so I'm getting a flip phone. And I need you to ask me. I'm pretty devious, and I know how to get around it. 
So I need you to ask me the questions. I'm putting a filter on my search engine. I'm getting rid of my laptop. I'm getting an old, can you even buy a desktop anymore? I don't even know if you can. I'm plugging my computer in so I can't take it around with me. If I'm going to be on the computer, it's going to be in a room where somebody else is. And somebody says, that's, that's like for, why? You're a grown man. I know I'm a grown man. And for some of you, you've got to be willing Make a hard choice. Break the chain. We're going to take communion in a minute. Jesus didn't just die to forgive you of your sins. He died to set you free. And you can walk in that. And it's all grace. And he says, will you cooperate? Will you cooperate? with what I'm wanting to do in your life. I've made provision for you to be free. You don't know this. You don't have to sin. We're going to because we're fallen. But the cross, the work of the cross was so extensive. When you say yes to Jesus, your nature is changed. You become a new creation. You don't have to sin anymore. We can be set free. Cut off your hand. Pluck out your eye. Cut off your feet. That's dealing with sin in your body. Ultimately, you have to deal with it in your heart. That's where all sin is rooted. Evil desires, Jesus said. They produce all, what's it comes out of our heart. produces all kinds of wickedness. It all starts internally. When we talk about sin, it's heavy, and it sounds like a whole list. There were 613 laws in the Old Testament, and even though there's only two in the New, love God and love people, it can still get overwhelming really quickly. Two things that can help positively orienting yourself. Many of you have been infatuated with somebody at some point. Maybe you married them. Those initial days of dating. All of your thoughts, all of your attention was focused on her or him. It's pretty easy in those days to not look around at anybody else. It's easy because you're focused in on this one As we grow in our relationship with the Lord, we can grow in that area as well. Asking the Lord, would you, Paul prays this prayer in Ephesians 3, would you strengthen me to know how wide and high and long and deep is your love for me and for other people? I want to know that. I want to know this love that Paul says surpasses knowledge. How's that even possible? I want to know this love that surpasses knowledge. We just sang that line, the things of the world are like a candle compared to you, the Son. As we grow in our comprehension, apprehension of the love of God, sin, which clouds our experience of His love and competes with His love, it becomes a whole lot easier to say no to that because you've seen the one. And that's, that's over time. Ask the, begin to ask the Lord, I want to know how much you love me. It's not here. Here. I want to know in the depth of who I am how much you love me. For some of you men, that's a hard thing to pray. It's not romantic and squishy. It's strong. It's solid. God's holiness 
When we think of sin, sometimes, again, it's a list of don'ts. Jesus was never accused of being a legalist. Tax, you're a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You're a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus was able to fully embrace life, yet without sin. And he's the one that we're supposed to be like. Be holy as I'm holy. So ask the Lord, mark me with your holiness and show me. What does it look like for me to be holy in the life that I'm living like you would, Jesus, if you were living it? With these people and all of their problems that drive me crazy. In this office with all of its politics. Show me what does it look like for me to be holy like you are. And he'll show you. It may not look like what you think. It may not look like what you think. It becomes less and less a list of rules. You wind up having to spend less time cutting off your hand and cutting off your feet and plucking out your eye because your heart is becoming more and more captured by him, by his love and by his holiness. As your heart changes, that external stuff tends to fade away. Let's do this. Y'all can... Grab the basket under your chair if you would. There, we're going to take communion and we'll close. Bo, you can come back. If you need gluten-free bread, you can raise your hand. Kim will bring you a little wafer. I want you to, I'm just going to walk you through this. If you're willing to pray this with me, you can pray it in your heart. If not, you can don't. This is what I would encourage you to begin to incorporate into your prayer time. Something that sounds like this. Holy Spirit, pray this in your heart if you're willing. Search me and know me. Show me where I'm missing the mark and I want you to name an area of your life. Just pick one. Show me where I'm missing the mark at home. Whatever comes to your mind, if something comes to your mind, own it. God, I blew it. I sinned. I reacted in anger. I was impatient. I was selfish and manipulative. I was dismissive. Whatever it was that he brings up. God, I acknowledge that that's a sin. I pray you'd forgive me. And I want to move from disagreeing with you to agreeing with you about that behavior, that it is sinful. And I pray that you would infuse me with grace and power to walk in a new direction. God, I know myself. And that's not the first time I've lost my temper. That's a passive way of saying it, isn't it? I lost it. It's not the first time I've exploded in anger. And I know if left to my own devices, I'm going to do it again. So God, what does it look like for me to cut off my hand, my foot, to pluck out my eye when it comes to the immediate cause of my anger? What do I need to do? See what he brings to mind. He may say, delete every news app off your phone. You're going to be dumb about the world and what's going on because all it does is make you angry. God, what do I need to do? See what he says. And then again, recognize, God, I can't, even, I can't do that. I need your power to enable me to obey in that area. I want to, but I know I can't. 
I'm asking for power to be obedient. Then next, God, would you, would, would you show me who's one, two, three people that need to know? A little bit of encouragement and accountability. And close with this. God, ultimately, I want to get to a spot where I'm so captivated by your love for me and for others. That the power of these temptations fades. I get it. I'm always prone. But I'm looking for the day and longing for the day and asking you to move me forward towards the day where I can know how wide and high and long and deep is your love for me. This love that's better than life. God, I'm asking you to mark me with your holiness. I don't want to be apathetic about sin. I don't want to dance with the devil, flirt with my flesh. I want to walk in holiness. I want to be holy the way you are holy, Jesus. So would you show me in the reality of my life, what does it look like to be in that world and not of it? To love you and to love people well without sin. I want you to break off a piece of bread and eat it. It's a body of Christ that's broken for you. That's provision for you. That represents everything that you need to be whole and to be free. You don't have to live in chains any longer. Peel back the foil and drink the juice represents the blood of Jesus poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Whatever came to mind, it's already been forgiven fully and completely. The sins that you're going to commit next Thursday, they've already been forgiven. There was all forgiven at the cross. You've been adopted as a son or a daughter into the family of God with all of the rights and privileges of a child of his. So live like it. We're going to close with this song of worship. You may want to sing or you may want to just kind of sit with the Lord. Either one is fine. And Bo will dismiss us in probably about two minutes. Three minutes. Hey guys, glad you're able to join us today. Uh, no matter where you're coming from, I saw a com couple comments from out of state. So glad you're able to watch uh, and, and to worship with us this morning. Um, we just have a couple minutes, but I, I wanted to, uh, to see Cole. We've both been praying and really just asking God, show us and, and communicate with us what you would like for us to be able to encourage um, those that are you guys that are watching online. And so Cole, would you want to share with us a little bit what God was saying to you? Of course. For those who don't know, we had a men's retreat uh, over the Transformation Network this past weekend. And uh, the theme and kind of the thread for the weekend was access. And so as David was sharing, he kind of mentioned some of the things that we took away from that time. And uh, then he also mentioned Psalms 139. And I thought it kind of just painted a, a really uh, beautiful picture of the nearness and the many avenues that we have to God, as well as that we have direct access to Him. And so verse 1 through 5 uh, I think showed the extent and the depth of the availability and nearness. So it says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. 
You discern my going out and my laying down. You're familiar with my, my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. And um, in this, that piece of confession and repentance, um, I think that is um, just a really clear way of looking at God and realizing uh, how clearly He does see us. And um, I think it can get a little foggy in our response to that. Like, how do we repent? How do we confess? And if you move down to verse 23, I think we see that perfect response, and I'll read that for us. So verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. And um, as we were um, talking about this and praying about this, Matt asked me to share a bit of what that looked like for my own life. He's like, you know, this is uh, kind of what was on my heart. And he was just like, well, what does that look like? How does that play out? Because I think it is uh, it's an easy thing to read and be like, yes, that's for us. But also, how does that tangibly play out? And I'd say for me, uh, in desiring to be conformed to uh, a closer image to God, uh, there's two different ways I can kind of view that as uh, either being overwhelmed by all the parts of my life that I need to change uh, or being underwhelmed. And what I mean by that is simply approaching God in prayer and asking for His guidance, search me and make things aware, convict me. Whether it's a simple thought of uh, asking for f- forgiveness for a friend or yeah, to- towards a friend uh, or a larger response, I think uh, just obedience in that very simple way um, leads to growth and it leads to the opening of doors uh, within community, but also uh, with our relationship with the Lord. Awesome. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, sharing that. And I hope today's message was encouraging. Um, yeah, spend some time. Psalm 139. Allow uh, just you have that space to be able to pray through that psalm, recognizing his nearness and our access to him. You guys, I hope you guys have a great day and uh, we'll see you next time.